From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome everybody to episode 189 of the Killing It podcast boy it's good to be back i have i haven't said in three weeks you we missed you although we had a good time hanging out with i was gone (laughs) (laughs) we 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 did know you were gone because we realized oh hey we're we're a little bit like teenagers who aren't very disciplined and and carl's the one who keeps this machine rolling so i know i had to to step in on time so i did my did my best effort but nadia was great fun she had a lot of fun mixing it up with us and we're looking forward to she did a really great job and uh, thank you nadia for stepping in Uh, we certainly appreciate it now the question of the day to kick us off the fun one because it's very appropriate with carl back gents what kind of luggage do you buy do you buy the super pricey stuff or the super cheap stuff so I will say, uh, uh, this is my question, <laughs> not, okay. not Nye's question, because I was looking at the luggage coming out of the uh, luggage uh, department uh, at San Francisco airport, and there was some super cool luggage. First of all, uh, I love the people who travel with Pelican cases. Uh, there was one piece of luggage that actually had these gargantuan ball bearings on the side so that if it was on a flat surface, it moved really smoothly. So when it slides on its side, you know, that kind of stuff. And I looked at mine, mine is like this brocade maroon uh, design, all cloth with embroidered elephants, right? It was like, I normally buy relatively cheap stuff so that I can get a new one every year when it gets destroyed by the gorillas. But there are other people who <laughs> like the high-end stuff. All right, and I think I got this tip from Ryan, but, but so I buy all Briggs and Riley now. Uh, so we are a hundred percent like, and actually I'm in the process of, I just think I've replaced all of the bags now because we bought a new big one this year. They are high end. I do not mind saying they are expensive. And when you say replaced, you mean under warranty? Hey, this got a scuff. Give me no, a no, no. I mean, I mean, we had an older piece that was still ah. the workhorse and I, they are expensive. So I did not buy them all at once. I initially like years ago bought a briefcase. Then I bought the, uh, a, a small, the smaller roller airline. And then I bought my garment bag, the folding garment bag. And this reason I bought the larger spinner, you know, for, for trips to when we went traveled this summer and you register them with like, there's a serial number, you register them with the website. They have a warranty on any kind of damage, including airline damage. And to their credit, I have taken my briefcase twice in to have parts replaced. And then it comes back and the sucker's as good as it ever was. And the, the, they, they are armor. Uh, my <laughs> best star, story of this is I, with my rolling laptop bag, I was on the London Tube and I dropped it and it rolled all the way down one of those long escalators with a satisfying kathunk, 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 kathunk. Uh, and there was no damage of any kind. And now I only buy Briggs and, Briggs and, Briggs and Riley. And they're all equipped with air tags. Oh, yeah. See, this is the thing, right? I only buy the expensive stuff 
not because I wanted to, but because I have learned the hard way that doing the other side is it can be a really miserable and unpleasant experience. Um, like up to and including you're the guy who has the one flied out in the airport on the other side of the world in a larger crate because it has exploded and its contents are everywhere and, and you get to like try to tape that back together so you can carry it bear hug style out of the airport into the taxi to your hotel on the other side of the world. Let me tell you, that's, that's going to motivate a, a price category change in your luggage habits. And, and I've tried them all, right? Like for years and years, way back when, we used to just get the Kirkland carry-on luggage from Costco. And those things were bulletproof and they only cost $99. And they had a trade-in and a replacement. They didn't repair it if it got jacked up. Oh, right. You just brought it back and they gave you a new one. And then they caught on to that and realized, oh, wait, we're doing way too much of that. So they got rid of it. But I think those did-ish a million miles around the world just in the, in the Kirkland ones. But then they were the ones that exploded all over the place. And so I traded up and traded up. I've experimented with very many different, very expensive brands. And I have said, uh, I'm sending this sucker back to you and getting a full refund because it just doesn't do what the Briggs and Riley does. I tell you, those things, they, they look good. They function forever. And I went, this, this will tell you a little bit about me. When we go to buy these pieces of luggage, I'll go in and I'll figure it out and I'll test it and make sure that it's great. And then Anissa will go over to the, the, to the cash register and I will walk away and continue to look at cool things while she pays so that I don't have to have the emotional experience of, Oh shit, it was actually that much. Yeah, wow. So that, that was <laughs> the longest intro on. we've ever done, but this is not a segment. So we need to do a show. We do need we a show. But Gents, does coordinating meetings and help desk calls frustrate you and your clients? Wouldn't it be easier if you could automate this process and it integrated with ConnectWise manage or Autotask? TimeZest is scheduling automation that gives you control of your schedule and removes the frustration of calendar ping pong. As the only solution specifically designed for MSPs, it integrates with your PSA to schedule appointments right in your workflow. And the best part? You can try it for free. Visit TimeZest.com to try it out today. I'll kick us off with our first topic, this is the best because it's a data point that's really interesting and we don't know why. U.S. workers have gotten less productive. In fact, it's the worst drop in U.S. worker output since 1947. In fact, they're looking at it saying it's very odd and there's been a lot of bouncing around, but it is distinctly dropped off when we look at, at what's going on right now. And as economists and, and look, dug into this, there is no reason that they can figure out. So I come to the council here to say, why do you guys think productivity is off? Well, let me just say, one of the classic things that happens with regard to the economy is that productivity normally goes up, 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 up as the economy improves, because eventually you, you have people doing as much work as possible before you hire somebody, you put off hiring somebody. So the number of, the amount of labor that gets done per employee is very high. And then suddenly you start hiring people and productivity drops because now you have more people and the same amount of work, right? So there's, there's that evaluation, but it's not clear where we are in that 
cycle because we don't really, you know, we have to look back and see whether we're growing or shrinking and, and so forth. So that's one piece. I think quiet quitting is probably a tiny piece of this. I think a bigger piece of it is between home and work, we have too much technology. We have, we are switching apps and switching things and switching modes so much that we've introduced this massive delay as our brains go, okay, I'm not on Zoom, now I'm on Teams and I gotta check my email before I get going with that. And so, right, instead of a smooth transition of five minutes walking down the hall, we spend 20 minutes trying to figure out where the hell we are with regard to all of our technology and our 14 screens. See, I, I, I buy that philosophy because complexity is the enemy of productivity in every single economic calculation, right? If you go back, as you did, Carl, to macroeconomics 110 in university, you are told that hiring people is the opposite of productivity until growth happens. If growth and, and the number of employees increase in in coordination, then productivity can continue to get higher. I think what we have is a world of, of complexity that is running into a slowing economy. You know, we learned last week that we were down for a quarter, we were up for a quarter, nobody really knows where we're at, but we're gonna raise the crap out of the, uh, out of the interest rates so that we can cause uh, a world that we understand. But I think in this uncertain, growth period, the complexity is actually having an outsized effect. I think honestly, just a little, little editorial opinion, the fact that productivity went up significantly, we all saw the research back at the beginning of the pandemic, the fact that it went up, I think had a lot to do with people being very grateful that they could continue to work in spite of this globe altering disruption that we all experienced. And there was a try hard factor, right? People were like, they were grateful, they were plugged in, they were very, very happy that they still had a job. So they wanted to continue to do it well. What I'm starting to see out there now is a trend towards, um, I do actually want to stop working sometime before midnight and I won't allow that continuous creep into my life. And I don't think it's as far as quiet quitting. I wouldn't go so dramatic as that, but I would say that healthy boundaries where we tell the employer, no, I'm sorry, I won't work a hundred hours this week. This is as many hours as you are rewarding me for. So that's what I'm going to do. I think we're about to see a big boom in boundary. I think you're kind of, kind of, leading into where i'm going my head is at this is i all the time when we we have these discussions it's always always this in the context of work well what is happening at work that is causing productivity to go down and i've been looking at this and saying i, I think i'm with you right the productivity spiked because people were grateful but i think as we are emerging and i still put in quotes because i'm not sure where it all is on that spectrum but as as we're settling into post pandemic uh, people are reevaluating a lot of choices. This is true during moments of trauma, right? Anytime, if you look at, at life choices, moments of trauma are when you make a lot of reevaluation. I was reading uh, some data because I'm a nerd and I like the data. Uh, and my favorite piece that came out this week was one in five employees don't want to go back to work because they got a dog. You're, <laughs> you're, 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 you're never going to get that insight by looking at it just within the scope of work. 
And I think the reason we're all scratching our heads going, ah, I can't figure out why the economy is causing productivity is because it's trying too much to look within just the box of work. And Ryan, I think you've alluded to it is, is I think what's happening is, is that there are cultural societal shifts happening around it that are causing people to make other decisions. And so the quote unquote old way of measuring may not make sense because they may be saying, well, productivity is down. Well, maybe what's happening is, is we're settling into what productivity was supposed to be, right? perhaps, or we're, need, we're needing to rebalance the scale or there's, there's other thoughts to this, but it has more to do what's happening outside of work than it does with within work. Well, and, and getting back to the technology piece, we've abused technology for a long time. You know, that basically, oh, I've got a laptop, now I can work from anywhere, which means I can work from the beach, I can work from a hotel room when I'm supposed to be taking a nap, I can, you know, I can work from all these other places instead of having a life. And so, you know, from the relax, focus, succeed perspective, I think it's a shift towards what it should be. And I would like to think to what Dave just said, I'd like to think it's the new normal, but my suspicion is give it five years and we'll be back to where we were because the human beings, you know, forget fish, human beings have no memory at all. And maybe I, I'm, I'm maintaining that I think some will fall back to that. And I actually think they will be underperformers because I think that they're, because I, I look at this and say, I think that there are going to be clever entrepreneurs, business people that figure out the best way to optimize in this version of it and will become the performers because they have optimized for that. Right. Uh, hiring, changing people exp are expensive. And if you can stabilize that and keep people with you longer, that's actually a good thing. Right. That is good in both of your descriptions. I think the fact that we're looking at this as a human question and not just a business productivity question, I think that's what's going to be the important shift. But as I said back at the beginning of the pandemic, where I said, I don't think remote work is going to be permanent because micromanagers. I also don't believe that the human integration in the work conversation is going to be permanent because there's going to be a CEO who says out loud, oh, I don't care whether they like it here. They're lucky to have a job. They should just be grateful. I've heard it myself. And I was going to say, I've heard it myself in my own career, and it's going to happen again. We're going to lose the kumbaya, and people are going to go back out there and say, you're lucky to have a job. One, one final note, and that is, I think it may be also the case that it'll be wise to start measuring productivity for people who are 60% home versus 60% in the office. And my guess is the people working from home will be more productive because they're going to be able to divide their 10 hours into three different exactly. shifts and get treated and like humans. All right, let's move on to topic number two, sirs. Uh, 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 in the spirit of some more confusing and contradictory economic indicators, Gartner's come out with their forecast for cloud spending in 2023, and they are bullish. Now, we're going to link to uh, an article, uh, an analysis of kind of their breakdown of numbers in the show notes. And I would highly encourage, if you haven't seen this somewhere, go in there and figure it out. Because you, me, and everybody who does technology for a living, we've been saying, you know, the cloud is actually got some economic benefits. And it's got some infrastructure utilization benefits. And there are some real good things about this. And those stories never ring more true 
than in times of economic uncertainty. So uh, we're about to, we're going into the uncertain phase in the economy, and Gartner is saying it's the gold digging days in the cloud economy. Uh, what do you guys say about these numbers? Well, I want to put some color around that too, because I covered I covered this on Business Attack as well. And the other thing I linked it to was last week's earnings or two weeks ago earnings calls from the big cloud providers, right? Google, uh, Amazon, and Microsoft all warning uh, Wall Street of a slowdown in their cloud in their cloud uh, spend or spend or their acquisition and revenue. So it's funny that Gartner comes out at the same time going, "It's gonna be great when the when the top three stocks in the space are saying, oh, maybe right." So now I think there's a certain degree you can always have to look at those estimates and say, like, look, they they are in the business of <laughs> under promise over deliver uh, because that's good for the stock, right? So I so I have to acknowledge that. But I, my take has been that this is what happens in slowdowns, that from a execution perspective, the big three are saying, well, there may be a few less people at some of these companies. There may be a little less drive on the investment. So we, the individual providers, are likely to see some slowdown. That said, it is a the, the clear trend of you're going to, pay more on consumption. It is the way to do. There will be a larger space of growth. And I'm inclined to think that it that Gartner's saying, yeah, we're expecting a lot of the businesses that get created to do this. We're expecting uh, more conversion toward it. How that falls out, hard, you know, who's going to win, who's going to get. And each of the individual players are just playing it cautious. Well, and I'm just digging in a little bit on Microsoft. So the reporting from Bloomberg on Microsoft is they are expected between gaming, Office 365, and cloud, they are expected to grow at the rate of 16 to 18% top line revenue for at least the next three to five years, right? Go get that anywhere else, right? I mean, that is, and then of course, oh, you, okay, well, go get it from Apple, go get it from Amazon, go right? get it from anybody except Twitter and Facebook, right? Um, so the tech industry is exploding. And part of this is that it's, the, the good news for us is this is separated from the massive amount of spending that the government has done because most of that money has not gone to those corporations. It's gone into people's pockets and they've chosen to spend it in other ways. So the, the inflation and the economy are one thing. These companies are a separate matter and they're growing because they're providing services that are in growing demand. Uh, so if you think that we have a problem with how many jobs are open in IT today, <laughs> give it three years. Right? And because because it's also it's not a matter of we don't have enough workers in the U.S. The, you know, all of these are global companies. We don't have enough workers in the world for the jobs that are being created in tech. And we're going to have to figure out what to do about that. Yep, I think that human question is going to be massive as we go into the uh, the shift out of end user IT department uh, job descriptions into service provider job descriptions, whether they are massive hyperscalers or whether they're the individual local service providers. I think there's going to be a big shift of labor uh, allocation from one to the other, which I tend to think is economically a lot more efficient. I think it's going to be a good thing. 
But this is breaking the trends of forecasts across any of the categories that we're looking at in technology. Like you said, Carl, the economy is getting one forecast and then these individual players within it. But if you look at hardware, if you look at software, if you look at professional services, telecommunications, cloud services, the only one that's really forecast to grow, well, there's two. There's one that's forecast to grow around the cloud, and the second one is forecast to grow around cybersecurity because we still haven't figured out how to fix that problem. We're throwing money at it, right? But the cloud is interesting. My takeaway on this is I buy the economic argument that if you take away the massive upfront outlay of cash on acquisition and you spread it out, even if my total cost of ownership is higher over three, six, and nine years, the fact that it's convenient monthly payments is much more tolerable in an uncertain economy. So I think that that's going to be the driver. My other take is I really do not wish to be the guy who is owning the sales forecast at the hardware infrastructure manufacturers. Because if you look at Gartner's previous, uh, they said uh, the two weeks ago, they said the decline in spending on PC hardware was the steepest that we have seen in more than two decades. And the forecast associated with infrastructure hardware is also aggressively negative. We're talking 20 points up in the cloud, 20 points down in other hardware. Uh, we've been talking about the cloud for a while, and we were like, oh, no, it's a niche case. You can use it in certain situations. I kind of feel like the economy's waking everybody up and going, oh, actually, we agree. Boom. Let's shift. Well, I think the pandemic did a lot for that. You know, when everybody had to go home and have no difference in the, their output, uh, well, how do you do that? Oh, let's just put it in the cloud. Boom. Like, done deal. Uh, it's it's one of these things like, oh, okay, well, if you've only been preaching the cloud for 12 <laughs> years, this makes sense, right? If you just I don't know anybody who's been preaching the cloud for 12 I, years. My name is Carl. <laughs> <laughs> I did the world tour in 2008, so. <laughs> right. And by the way, this, this is an audio podcast, and for the listeners, Carl was raising his hand. <laughs> Very cool. All right. Sadly, we're out of time for that, but our final topic is somewhat related, at least with regard to money, uh, U.S. banks, Tech Radar reports, uh, and many other people, I think it originally came from uh, uh, another source, but anyway, that U.S. banks paid $1.2 billion in ransomware payments last year, due in large part to attacks launched from Russia. And, I, you know, this is not a huge surprise, except that the breaking the billion dollar mark, that's a, a notch into the actual economy. You know, I mean, that's a huge thing. It's not like, oh, yeah, it's going up, it's going up. No, it is gargantuan. And the weird part is these are banks. These are among the most regulated industries in the world and the most connected and the ones who are willing to spend all the money there is available on cybersecurity. So I'm just wondering, the, the question is, if banks can't protect themselves, what about the rest of us? Or are they choosing to pay out just because it's cheaper than fixing things? I've always said that with ransomware, when I see these stories about massive payments, that somebody didn't have a good backup. Like, if you can't push a button and get back in business, let me talk to my you know friends who sell BDRs. Um, and so if banks are not investing in that, what's, what's wrong? What's broken in this system? Or is this just 
something that we're going to come to expect that this is a piece of the the tax on the uh, economy going forward i don't want to call it a tax i mean so i have to, <laughs> i've been thinking a lot about the incentives around fixing this right and you know and and i and i smile and go like you've got this giant cybersecurity industry that are not necessarily motivated to eliminate the problem because they actually eliminate themselves at some level. It is better to sell security response tools than it is to actually re-engineer the product set or address human implementation of systems and eliminate the problem, right? That, that is a lot of, of the, there, there's an incentive structure here that's, that's wrong. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't observe that incentive structure is oftentimes ripe for disruption. Um, my recent rants on this is is the, look, I don't understand why we're still running SMTP. Like, I, I just, I just don't. Uh, I because, <laughs> and, and I, you know, and I literally was on it was on a call recently with somebody talking about this. He said, well, I've been trying to eliminate this for years. And I'm looking at this and go, yeah, but the financial incentives have changed a lot in the past five years around e business email compromise. Uh, other industries were motivated to make changes. We went from AM radio to FM radio to satellite radio to internet radio, right? Because of, of disruptions. We went from, uh, you know, old school SDTV to HDTV. We went to internet enabled television. Like we, other, other technologies have been pushed out based on incentives to deliver new stuff, but yet we, clutch our pearls and hold on to SMTP because it can't possibly go away. It's like, well, maybe there's actually a really large industry in quote unquote email security that it would be really upset if this went away. You know, all of the anti-spam tools and stuff that would be really unhappy if we had actual identity in the system. And those, for, for those of you watching the podcast, Dave just clutched his pearls when he said I did. That. I really did. On the, on the video <laughs> podcast, I clutched my pearls. <laughs> there were actual pearls. Uh, so I will say, Dave, we are not the first industry to grapple with this question. Uh, for many years, it has been said that it, it's not only possible to cure the common cold, but it is beneficial to society. And yet we are told there is no cure for the common cold. Why? Because it's far more economically advantageous to treat the common cold than it is to cure the common cold. And that has been applied through many different industries, right? It is a calculation of the potential for loss against the opportunity to get paid to solve it, right? Uh, cars could be built much more safely than they are, but investing in new brake systems and safety systems and other things like that, that's really, really expensive, whereas we're only going to lose X number of people a year due to accidents. And we believe that the court payouts for the people who die in car accidents are going to be radically less expensive. Now, I'm not saying that's a moral or an ethical position. I'm saying that is the calculation that industries go through. And it is only possible when an industry separates or isolates the tactical solution from the core business entity. In other words, if you apply this to your analysis of the, uh, of the business of technology, we only can have the treating the symptom being more profitable than solving the problem when we treat cybersecurity as a separate function. 
when we design in that capability at the product level, when security becomes the responsibility of the business application providers, the business network providers, when I as the user am not responsible for my own quality of service because it's built in and it's inseparable, it's indispensable, it, the economics change radically, right? The fact that we say, I will sell you a computer. Oh, and by the way, that thing's totally not secure. And that's okay. Everybody is fine with that. Everybody thinks that that's just standard operating procedure. When the marketplace wakes up and says, wait a minute, it is unacceptable to sell a non-secure device. That is when we will finally shift the mentality and get to a point where cybersecurity is designed in, not applied to the top of as an aftermarket enhancement. Here's a here's a question for you guys. Do you think that this is more likely to be a problem with a big old school bank that's been around for 250 years or a completely brand new online only bank where maybe it's built from the ground up to be more secure? It could be that those old systems, you just can't patch them. They're like, there's a billion points of entry and they all have to be protected perfectly every day. Absolutely true. And yet bankers do spend as an industry a higher percentage of their total net of their total revenue on IT than other industries do. Right. So they are spending money to try and solve this problem. I think what's interesting, Carl, is that the statistic you're pointing to, it's not just happening randomly. It's happening in a world where the de facto strategy is we do not pay ransom. It is stated, it is public, it is the way that, that people are operating. We do not pay, and yet, yes, we do, because A, we don't have a backup, and B, because we can't freaking fix our, exactly, except for the billion. If they, if they were looking at it like, ah, geez, I just can't fix the problem, that billion would be 10. And that, that's the thing, that's the, that's the best they can get, and knowing a bunch of bankers in this world, it's not that they're not trying. Is that the systems are new and old, just radically open to exploit. What's a billion dollars between friends? I mean, like, but <laughs> I, I do have to say, Dave, I want to, I did want to say to your first comment on this topic, I think it's very cynical to think that the, the security vendors have an interest in not solving the problem. I remember whatever, 20 years ago, Clients would come to me and say, you know, isn't it really just UIT people who are creating these viruses? It was like, no, you have to believe I am 100% committed to stopping this. And I have complete employment going forward because there are enough bad guys in the world. I don't have to worry that, that the uh, bad guys are going to stop making viruses okay. or stop improving them. So you are not wrong. And it is very cynical. That does not necessarily mean I am wrong. Uh, but, <laughs> okay, but but, but let, let, let's take. I, I make the point cynically to make the bold point. But I want to I want to end with with sort of the thinking of. Look, we understand that the biggest problem in security is human. Yet the to, but yet it continues to be tools and vendors that are approaching on this. That is not a cynical analysis to say there is a mismatch between the way we're addressing it by selling more tools versus knowing that the problem is human. Very good. And that will be the final word on this, the 189th episode of the Killing It. Killing It podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, 
and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.